Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. I am Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. We are excited to have uh, Stephen Varela with us. Um, He is running for the state Senate seat for the Pueblo District. You'll remember from a few episodes ago, we had uh, his opponent in this race, Nick Henriksen, on. Um, And both of these guys are great Action 22 members, and they are doing a lot. They they care so much about the community. Um, And I have to apologize because you'll remember um, from last week's episode that we said we were going to have them both on the show today. Um, But there were some scheduling conflicts. You know how it is during an election year. Um, All these things come up. And so instead of waiting to hear from Stephen, we decided to go ahead and move forward with it. And we're hope at some point down the road that we can have both of them um, just really talking about um, the issues that uh, we're hearing about so often from our communities. Um, but we're just really excited to have Stephen with us. Um, we got to know Stephen, actually, I think Brian's known Stephen for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. It goes back to when I was working for Congressman Tipton, and Stephen was the union rep for the VA, the federal government employees. Is that what's, yeah. the, what's the proper nomenclature for that? AFGE, so American Federation of Government Employees. Okay. So obviously we were working on a lot of VA issues, so he'd come in the office and bring those concerns to us, and we did what we could to fix it. And um, always would say hi when he was in D.C., stopped by the office, and I hope that we helped out with some of those issues that you brought to our attention. Oh, yeah, you guys are very responsive. We always appreciated it. Uh, Congressman Tipton always had an open door for us whenever it came to veterans issues. And you were very helpful getting a lot of it scheduled, making sure that we were able to engage the congressman and even engage some of the U.S. senators to talk about local issues here in Pueblo. And access to rural care was a, a major one. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're still dealing with a lot of those issues. In fact, right before this, I was on the UVC call listening to the VA, what they're doing and their solutions to bring better care to the rural area. Um, I think it's a little bit of progress, but there's a long way to go until like us veterans get that care that we need and deserve. You know, I, I, I would have to agree with you because one of the things that we have right now with Parkview losing their access to acute care I mean, we serve, what is it, 18,000 veterans? Am I about that correct here in the city? Yeah, depending on what, if you read the census, if you go through the VA, I put it around 18,000. I think officially they say it's around 14,500, but realistically 18 plus. And, you know, Pueblo's the hub, and I think we serve in southeastern Colorado, about 42,000 veterans is our number. And then I think in Colorado Springs, the last time I looked, they were at 90,000 veterans and Denver's at 23. And I think they're the fastest decreasing veteran population in the nation and they have the hospital and we don't. Yeah. And and El Paso is, I heard today that it's the fastest growing and they just said that they secured a lease for two new clinics in El Paso County until they can get a hospital improved and, you know. But aside from that, we'll, we'll get back to what you're running for and why you're running for it. <laughs> so the very first time, I remember the first time I met you, I can't remember what, I remember we were at the library 
for a meeting and I can't remember what it was, but I think you were running for maybe city council at the time. And that was an interesting campaign. Um, the city of Pueblo wasn't quite ready for you at that point, but I knew we would see you back again. I was really struck by, um, how tuned in you were to the actual issues that are going on in Pueblo. Um, and not so much on a, a political party side, but really like this is what's facing our community and on those issues. So I was really happy to see that you were going to run for this seat because um, either way, I knew that we would be talking about um, the issues that are happening in, in Pueblo. So I appreciate that. So um, where I'm going to start out with the question uh, especially for those of you who might have had a, a taste at one point or another of what Pueblo politics are. And I always say um, Pueblo politics requires um, a navigator, an interpreter, and a security team, which is pretty close to, I think, what's needed. What prompted you to run for the seat, for heaven's sakes? What <laughs> what craziness ensued? Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the city council race because that was kind of my first experience in politics. And I mean, besides doing the labor union stuff, um, you know, I, I ran on a motto back then of new leadership, new possibilities. And then when I decided to jump into this race, it was very interesting. I kind of ran a little bit of an exploratory campaign, kind of to get an idea to see if this is something that I really wanted to do. And I would say it was like about a week before the actual county assembly, my wife and I, we were sitting around and we were talking about all the crime, you know, the economy and Pueblo, and we have four kids and giving them an opportunity to have a, an option to stay in Pueblo. You know, if they go to college here, we were losing our students and my son's getting ready to go in the high school. And so my wife was like, you know, what, why don't we make do something to make a change? And I was like, well, what, what do I do? And she goes, well, why don't you consider running for office? And I was like, oh, I go, it was a lot of work last time. And uh, I told her, well, I go, you know what? I go, I, I might consider it. And and I go, but I'm not sure. And she kind of did the, if not you, then who, if not now, then when? And so we filed our paperwork the day before the assembly. And I kind of showed up to the county assembly on a Saturday, not knowing what the outcome would be. Because, uh, you know, there were good candidates that were running on, on the same side as myself on the assembly, the Republican ticket. And we had Judy Ryer. She was a former legislator. We had Alex Magatu, kind of a perennial candidate. Um, we had uh, Ron Parker, who had ran against Stephanie Luck in the past and just came off of that race in a primary. And he, he had a really close primary. So I, I didn't know what was going to come of it. And when I went in there, I gave my speech. And what I talked about was bringing back middle ground and taking a pragmatic approach to politics and looking at things from the perspective of 80-20. So if you agree with me 80% of the time, you're not 20% my enemy, you're 80% my ally. And and bringing that back and really talking about those issues and focusing on crime and safety and vagrancy and and people really resonated with them, or at least I believe it did because um, when they went away, they came back and announced that I had took in 68% of the assembly and I was able to keep the other candidates off the ballot, which, you know, I, I mean, that's really good because it shows that people in Pueblo County are ready for change. They're ready to find somebody to come to the middle and really work through. And and one of the things that I've always been open about is I used to be a Democrat because that's one thing that comes up from a lot of people. And they say, well, you know, tell me about, you know, your, your journey here. And, and I go, you know, it started off as a Democrat, as a union labor leader and advocating for veterans. So it, it kind of brought me on this journey. But um, yeah, it, it 
it was quite quite the interesting feat because after that, I I mean, now I'm here. <laughs> I think that was the most surprising thing um, when I heard that you and I knew that this is where you where you were. It was it was pragmatic is a great word. Um, sort of come to the middle part of that, um, and so I thought, oh, he's never going to get out of the assembly um, with that. So yeah, that was that was the most exciting part for me. That you won the that you won the nomination, so yeah, and um, and we saw a ton of primaries, which that goes to show something right there. And you did not have one. Um, so one thing we had your opponent in here, and any candidate that comes in, I think we've had five ish now. Um, which we offer this platform for any Action Twenty Two member who's running for office, no matter how big or small. Uh, but I bring this up with all of them, no matter what office they're running for. If you walk down the street and you talk to the average person, uh, the one thing that they have an issue with, and they say it, it said like, what, what is your concern? What is the issue? And here in Pueblo, it's crime and it's also homelessness. And I know those are separate issues, but in the, I always say they're tied to each other because it's almost a symbiotic relationship. And we've heard a multitude of solutions from people from running from Senate all the way down to dog catcher. So that being the number one issue amongst the populace of Pueblo and the constituency, what are some ideas or solutions that you have to address crime and homelessness? You know, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question because I it's a very complex one because I think it's more than a one-size-fits-all. And I think a lot of candidates they get tied into the idea that they either say one way or another, like my opponent might be on the side of defunding the police and allowing the folks to be more in the community. I'm more on the side of let's fully fund our police officers. Let's get back qualified immunity because then that's one right now we're running into. If you read an article that came out, it talked about our police department being down 33 officers. And with the qualified immunity being gone, that is one of the areas why a lot of our officers are leaving the, the force. A lot of them aren't wanting to go into that career field. But even besides that, when it comes to homelessness, I think one of the things we look at in our community is dual diagnosis. We have a lot of people on the street that are mental health. And I talk about that because that's one of the most important things. Kirk Taylor, about a few years ago, when they were doing the tours of the jail, they were talking about our jail population. 42% of them were dual diagnosis with a mental health issue. And when you have a jail system that's overcrowded and then when they're letting them out and now with the uh, penal code being kind of rewritten to where, you know, it's at $2,000 limit, if it's below it, it kind of turns into a catch and release. And then they're just putting them back on the streets and not actually treating the problem. I think we got to get it tougher on crime, but in the sense of really looking at it from a holistic approach, I think we need to really focus on what the root cause of it is. And vagrancy is huge. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do one even better besides walking down the street and talking to somebody when I'm knocking on the doors. And, and I, I don't know if you noticed, I've been getting browner and browner. I knock doors every day. I'm, I'm out there and I'm talking to the voter and I'm meeting them where they're at because one of the things they're telling me is, is crime, is vagrancy. Mm-hmm. They're talking about the economy. They're talking about gas prices. And, and this common theme of what I'm hearing, and, and I heard this from a lady that was even even more touching. I was in Avondale, and she told me, she goes, are you a Democrat or Republican? And I said, I go, well, ma'am, I go, I'm the conservative candidate. I am a Republican. 
And she goes, well, I'm glad to hear that. She goes, because I used to be a Democrat. And I go, so was I. And she goes, my son's a drug addict. I go, okay. She goes, any mother that has a son that is a drug addict can no longer be a Democrat. And I'm hearing this from a voter. And I go, what do you mean? I don't understand this. I go, help me because, I, you know, I'm a clinical social worker. I want to understand more. And she goes, well, I look at it this way. They have my son. They pick him up in the morning on a Medicaid ride. She goes, they take him down to his Suboxone clinic. Then he gets his Suboxone. Right when he walks out of the clinic, there's a drug dealer right there. He buys his heroin. She goes, then he gets back in his Medicaid ride. Then he comes back home, and he stays in a house that's paid for by Section 8 housing. She goes, and then he gets a check monthly just to be that way. She goes, and he's in his 30s. She goes, that has never happened before. She goes, but I see that one party is really pushing this idea. And she goes, how do we fix it? I go, you know what? I go, I want to fix that. I go, because that matters to you, and it matters to me because I have young kids. I have three boys and a girl. And I don't want them to fall into that, to think that that's okay, that that's a future that we can have. So when when we talk about it, it is very complex. It's more than just fixing one problem or saying, let's just get tough on crime, because we do need to be tough on crime, but let's do it the right way. Let's take the proper approach. I know um, I went to one of the uh, police events. I was watching it online, and a gentleman asked in the audience, he goes, I own a small business. He goes, and they come in there, and I'm paraphrasing what he was talking about. He's talked about they could come in there and steal daily, you know, $1,800, and nothing happens. And then he goes and plays um, in Cripple Creek and wins $1,200. And if he doesn't pay those taxes, he's going to get a felony. But the guy who stole all that money from him, nothing happens. I think we're seeing a huge imbalance right now. And, it, and it's making people afraid. You know, I, I mean, we talk about gun control, but then we're defunding the people that are protecting us, the police officers, or we're removing their protections with that qualified immunity. And I, I think right now anybody getting in that profession is scary. I had a police officer tell me the other day, he goes, Stephen, he goes, if I go to arrest somebody who's in psychosis, he goes, and they attack me, and he goes, if something happens and I hurt them, you know, not meaning to, by just trying to restrain them to help them out. He goes, now I'm afraid of what happens to me. And I go, wow, I go, I never looked at it that way. So it, it's very interesting. I, I hope that answered your question as much as I could. Yeah, it did. And um, you brought up another point that we're hearing. It's the, the economy, right? It's uh, inflation. Uh, that has hit Colorado, I think, the, either the, the hardest in the country or second. Uh, and you sent me, or somebody sent me a report ahead of this. It's the Joint Economic Committee, and that's where they list that Colorado has one of the highest inflation rates in the nation. I think it's upwards of around $900 to $1,000 extra that we're spending to live a month. So I I know a lot of this is tied to the feds, and we have the uh, inflation package that just was signed into law by the president, and some other programs are doing, but I've always said that anything that trickles down from the federal government takes years to see, to see an effect to it. Of course. Other than the checks we got for COVID. We saw that pretty quick, which I was amazed that they got that money out as fast as they can. That's the fastest the federal government's worked in probably a century, <laughs> other than Pearl Harbor or <laughs> September 11th, but... Uh, from a state perspective, what can you do to ease the burden of inflation in the state of Colorado if you were elected? 
You know, I, I think there's many different things that can be done once elected. Um, I'm going to have a great opportunity to partner with a lot of small business associations, the NFIB, different to, to really look at what's going on. Because I think for the longest time, we haven't invested in small businesses like we should more of. You know, I remember as a young man in the 90s growing up, we always heard that the platform was small businesses are the mm-hmm. backbone of your community. And I feel like we've gotten away from that and we put a lot of focus on corporations and I think that's hurting us. I think one of the things that we can really do to build our economy, and I, I look at it more as from Pueblo, right? So one of the things I tell a lot of folks when I meet with them in Denver is Pueblo's very unique. We're Pueblo first. So I, I will do a lot to focus on easing that burden, but more so is focusing on how do we grow Pueblo's economy. Right now, our economy is not diversified. We're either going to work at the mill, we're going to work as a school teacher, we're going to work in healthcare. That's not enough. I think we can focus on in our schools, really putting in more of the um, trades, focusing on that because that builds a lot of earning power, generational wealth. But I mean, there's just so much right now in our economy and in our state that we could really focus on to really make positive changes. But I think it's going to really be crossing the aisle and working one-on-one and finding common ground and solutions. And prior to COVID, it was the first time in recent history there were more small businesses closing than opening. And I know COVID just made it worse. I, I mean, that's a whole other factor in this. But prior to COVID, more small businesses were being shut down than open. And the reason for that, if you asked any business owner that was shutting down or about to shut down or even starting a small business, it was regulations. And this goes from the federal level on down to the state and local. What's one way you can basically cut the red tape or streamline business regulations to open up, make it easier to open up a small business? Yeah, no, exactly. And, and that's and that's very important is we do have to remove a lot of those regulations because right now there's so many regulations that create barriers for small businesses. One of the things I like to look at is Detroit. You know, a lot of folks consider Detroit an urban wasteland. And one of the things that's really helping Detroit grow and resurge is the Hispanic community with the growth of small businesses in the Latino community. And I think that's something we can see here in Pueblo is having that opportunity to really create that growth and really encourage these small business, create more incentives for them to grow, kind of like a PEDCO model, but looking at it from the state perspective of how do we really reinvest in these small companies and give them the ability to grow, create, give them more loans, find ways to help them get those loans, find ways to help generate that generational wealth, find ways to get products at affordable costs. So I've got to ask, you know, Colorado along that same vein, um, and one of the things that you're going to have to deal with um, at the Capitol that we deal with all the time is that is Colorado fiscal policy. Colorado fiscal policy is a growth pace for itself, which for those of you who aren't familiar, and there's a lot of you that um, wouldn't be, growth pace for itself means that the the government's not investing that that any developers or anything um, investment has to come from um, an outside private and there, there can be, um, public private partnerships, but that all of that development, um, and growth has to pay for itself. But we're in the middle of a housing crisis. How do we overcome that in Colorado? You know, I'm, I'm telling you, I look at Pueblo as the last frontier on the front range. I think that's safe to say we have water. I, I said on planning and zoning for the county. And one of the things we talked about was, letting people know that Pueblo is open to grow. We're open for business. We have the ability to grow, but I think we have to grow sustainably. 
And I think affordable housing is huge right now. Um, I think, what is it? House Bill 13. What, what's the, the electrification one? 1320? Uh, nope. 1360. 1362? We talk about it all the time. We do, but as soon as the session is over, we forget the numbers. Because there's going to be new numbers next year. So, yeah, I think it was 1362. Yeah, and when we look at that, that's going to add unwanted, unneeded requirements for home builders, which that cost is going to be put onto the consumer. And I I don't think a lot of us realize that. We understand we want to be environmentally conscious, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we're allowing areas to grow sustainably. I think if you looked at, there was an article that the, or was the Colorado Springs put out or the Denver Gazette, and it talked a little bit about like how much it would cost us. I think around 60 billion, would it be? by? Yeah, I, we bring up Rocky Ford. And for those of you listening, uh, if you go to our YouTube channel, we actually did a rant on that that you can find right now. Uh, but they looked at Rocky Ford and the average cost per house to basically transfer to complete electric. So electric furnace, electric stove, you know, electric heat, all, all of the above was roughly between 12 and $20,000 a household for an area where the, the household income on average is like 32,000. If you did the entire town of Rocky Ford, and this is according to a Black Hills study, which I have faith in that it is correct. I think it was. In, it's a little on the conservative side, uh, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> and it, what was it? It was like 20, 23 million, 23 right? million just, just for Rocky city. Ford. Wow. And Rocky Ford has a population of what? Like 2000, if that. And, and their annual, like the Rocky Ford's annual budget is something like five or six million. It's a tiny little community. And, and again, go back to our YouTube show last week and listen to this, but Again, this is not a mandate, but it kind of is a mandate. And there's a, it's a roundabout way of forcing electrification, benef- quote-unquote beneficial electrification on the Forced. constituents and citizens of Colorado. And that, you know, and Sarah brings it up and said it well. It's like we have a housing shortage. Like how does making a house more expensive to build help our housing shortage? <laughs> Exactly. Well, and then that even goes back to when we're talking about how do we remove barriers for small businesses? Because who's going to get taxed is the small businesses are the ones that always get the burden. So that burden is going to get passed somewhere. And what I mean by that is, if we're going to say, well, we're going to give the homeowners incentives or something along those lines, well, somebody pays for it. And it comes most of the time from those business entities. So now, you know, it's just, I don't think we look at it from that holistic approach. We're missing the circle and how it all ties in together. We just see it and we jump on the idea like, okay, this electrification sounds great, but is it going to be sustainable? Is it long-term? How's that going to work? Because it's not only just solar panels. It's not only just a furnace, it's insulation now. Mm -hmm. It's changing your shingles on your roof. You know, it's changing your drywall ratings. So, and if we're, and you could even go to manufacturing, you know, there's lead times that are out, outrageous right yeah. now. So it, it's just, it's something that'll keep trickling down that we really need to focus on. Cause it, it's almost like I remember when I was a kid, they talked about trickle down economics. And I feel like we're living in trickle down debt right now. And, you know, who's going to bear that burden? It's going to be our kids and our kids' kids. And at some point, we have to do something to fix it. And I think this is our opportunity. And when it comes to affordable housing, I think that ties us into education 
because I think of that single mom that worked one job and was making minimum wage that could buy a house on the east side of Pueblo for $46,000. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> in in the la- Literally in the last three years, would you say, is that safe? Because your wife's a real estate agent. Yeah. I mean, she's selling or closing deals on the east side of 150000 190000 And there's people that bought their house just five years ago for $49,000. Yep. And, and just think about that. So now that single mom that is either renting that house that was priced at 49000 or owned that home at 49000 worked one job, was able to be home at the end of their child's you know, day, work with them on their education, work with them on their homework, their schoolwork, take them to school. Now we run into the problem where they're working two to three jobs just to make rent on a $200,000 home. Now, who is there with the young man or woman when they're coming home from school to work with them on that education? Then it's something like we see what's going on in California where our crime rates are going to spike even higher, where you have more theft, auto theft, you're going to have more uh, vagrancy, you're going to have more, um, you know, you're going to see a rise in gang crime, because then the streets tend to raise those children. I think we have to really look at at that as a priority when we're looking at affordability. So that ties us into education. Uh, You do sit on a school board, correct? And it's a charter school who uh, just recently joined Action 22. And I always get the name mixed up. Is it Huerta Chavez or Chavez Huerta? So, you know, it's really interesting. We're going to have to work on that because we added a middle school since then. So the business code is CHPA, which is Chavez Huerta Preparatory Academy. Mm-hmm. But we have Arcelia Cruz Middle School now. So it's not added in there. But the we're K-12. We have about 1,000. 80 students that go there. Um, We just received the largest best grant in state history. We worked very hard on that as a board and as an organization as a whole. We received 35 million. Um, Prior to that, we just closed and finished our middle school, which we used on our own bond. So we really um, were growing because one of the things, and I'll tell you this, is I believe the civil rights issue of our generation is educational choice for parents. And here's why I say that. Because I believe a lot of families are getting locked into low-performing schools and don't have an opportunity to move their children to a school that is performing better. Think of District 60. It's been historically for years low-performing. It's been teetering right on the bottom of, of the state, you know, and one of the things by providing choice like a charter school like our school, PSAS, Swallows in the Pueblo West, And even we have some good Catholic schools here in our community. If we could find a way to fund that for the parents, I think that's going to help a lot of these parents. And it's going to create competition as well. And and I think that's where we're at. If you're in District 60, there are some schools that are high performing. If they go to Fountain Elementary or they go to Corwin Middle School, but that's not enough. We have a lot of schools where a lot of our kids are in low-performing schools and they're stuck there or the parents feel stuck there. And then that ties us back into the affordable housing because some of those high-performing schools require busing and some of those high-performing schools don't provide busing. So how do those parents get them there? And then when you have a charter school like us, it's part of the choice system we offer busing. We pick the kids up anywhere they're at to give them that opportunity. We provide them in their freshman year. 
We allow them to go straight to college. We get them a laptop. We drive them to the school. We even bring them back and provide tutoring for them. We provide alternatives. One of the things I'm doing right now, and you and I have talked about this, Brian, is bringing more of the trades because education is not a one-size-fits-all. And I feel like we get so locked into that mentality that you have to go to college. You have to go to college. College is great. You know, I, I have my master's in clinical social work. Um, it, it's one of the longest programs, and it's the least paying of all the medical. It's you got to have a bleeding heart to do it. But, you know, there's I have a buddy that's an electrician, and he right out of high school, he became a journeyman, and then he owns his own business, and he's a million millionaire back home. And, you know, he's, he's doing a great job on his own, and, and I think we – we need to realize and recognize a society that we have options. And I think providing parents with those options as well. If, if you look at Brian, you and myself, we have a GI bill and our GI bill is publicly funded and we can use that publicly funded money to go to any school we want to, whether it be a public school like a state, like University of Colorado or CSU Pueblo, or we can use it to go to a private school. We can go to Notre Dame, USC, uh, University of Southern California, because some folks around here call CSU Pueblo (laughs) USC. Yep, still. I went to USC and CSU Pueblo. (laughs) Well, I I went to CSU Pueblo, and I went to USC in Southern California. (laughs) But, um, you know, and we had that option to use that, to, to have that opportunity. And it, it, and it's safe to say we felt empowered, correct? But I think we need to empower our parents and allow them that option. We need to give them the opportunity to decide where their young child goes, you know? So let me ask you for these families and these students who um, are stuck in low performing schools, why not focus on making those low-performing schools high-performing schools instead of further marginalizing those that are stuck mm-hmm. in those low-performing schools? You know, I, I think that's a great, great thing to say because one of the things that we've noticed, and if we look at historically, we, we've we created through, I think, Colorado Department of Education has plenty of programs for schools that are low-performing that are in turnaround status, and we put all the resources, we continue to put money into it, and I think what we're noticing is that there is no change. So how do we change it? I think that's going to take a community to figure it out. And my thought is if we did create, well, think of it this way, competition. So if you have really high-performing charter schools or you create that opportunity for parents to choose where their kids can go to school, now you're going to have those low-performing schools are going to have to say, okay, wait a minute, what are we doing wrong? We're losing our enrollment. We're losing our numbers. We need to fix and change something. Because I feel like right now one of the things I've noticed is a lot of these schools are kind of stuck in this is how we've always done it, so we're going to continue to do it. And one of the things we see here in Pueblo, we see it in Denver, we see it in uh, um, very high Hispanic, African-American minority communities or working class communities is a lot of Teach for America teachers, which are new, young, right out of school. Or we see a lot of older teachers that are ready to retire. So we're missing that middle group, you know, so you have the new young that are trying to learn and figure out what's going on and and, you know, where, where do I need to be at? Do I need to do technology? What are the updates? What is new and innovative? And then you have a lot of the older teachers that are ready to retire that are saying, well, this is how I've always done it. And I think one of the things, too, not that I don't like testing, I feel like we get focused on testing. You got to think when it comes to a teacher, if it's one of those, you have a really a classroom and they're saying, OK, well, 
this year, you know, we notice you're performing lower, so you're working on dibbles. And while a dibbles isn't working for your school, so now, you know, you just learned the program. You just learned how to operate it. You just got familiar with it. And you have those new teachers who are only going to be there for two years and leave. Or you have those older teachers that are just like, I'm not going to learn something new. Because then you say dibbles isn't working. We're going to move you to iReady. And then they move to iReady, and by that time you have burnout, and there's no continuity. It's same thing what we see in healthcare. But I, I think there are opportunities, and I think it will open our eyes as a community if we created that competition to say, hey, this is what we need. And it's nothing against unions, because this is one of the things I had one one person tell me, well, if you're, if you're going to fund um, the parent or fund the student, allow the funding to follow the child, then that's going to break up unions. Well, we have the Labor Peace Act here in Colorado. They expanded the um, – just recently there was a bill that went through to allow collective bargaining for all. I mean, any of these schools can organize and unionize if they wanted to. They can go through the process. There's no one stopping them from it. So it's not eliminating the unions. It's actually empowering the parents and it's empowering the students. And I feel like we're not doing that right now. I'm a parent. And I mean, I'm always looking for the next best school or where are my kids going to go? Because that's what we want. You're a parent, Sarah. You probably did the same thing. You researched the school. You made sure that it was high performing. Not at all. I sleep with a teacher and a coach. Well, there you go. So my husband's, <laughs> my husband's been a teacher for like 24, 25 years in different places. And, and so, um, and it's in rural schools. Of course. So there, so my concern is, especially for these rural communities, um, the, you're going to leave a lot behind on these small communities um, because if you're, you know, only the people that can afford to bus their kids to other places or something like that, or they, you know, they can survive on a one income household or, or things like that. Um, but for our rural schools, when you say charter schools and, and all of that, um, that doesn't help our rural communities of course. Um, because there's only one option. Um, there's only one option for a school in Rye where my husband teaches. And so um, I'm interested to, uh, you know, I understand the idea of a school choice, of course. but, but uh, I, I wonder about um, those kids who um, don't really have an option or the parents don't have an option to pick which school. I mean, even if it was a choice, there's there's certain barriers that they don't actually have a choice. No, of course, and and I think when it comes to parents' choice, it's not a one size fits all, mm-hmm. and it's going to be very unique. It's going to be community based, and and this is one of the things that that I want to take to the legislature in Denver is bringing that voice of parents because I think sometimes we have a lot of folks that run a law and they don't talk to stakeholders. They're not engaging with rural Colorado. That is the story of our life. Yes. The past two years, like seriously, the stakeholder process, there was absolutely no stakeholder process amongst our elected officials uh, that sponsored, introduced, and passed a lot of this legislation from education to law enforcement to energy. You just name it. And I think we need more stakeholder buy-in. And and I've noticed, even myself as a regular voter, I tell people, I, I've noticed that I feel left out sometimes on certain things. Like, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I have solar panels on my house. I put 52 panels all together on there. I love it. I'm an overproducer. It's a great program to have. 
But now my, my neighbor who's 80 years old, it's not the right thing for her. She doesn't want to do it because that's an investment. So I, I think when, and, and why I'm saying this story is I think we got to look at it is sometimes we have too much government and we don't have enough of people to actually make their own decisions. And, and it goes back to just basics of, and I tell people, I go, let me sum my campaign up the easiest way. Less government, less taxes, more individual freedoms. And I feel like we need that because we've gotten away from that. We've we've turned into where we're overregulated or everybody gets a great idea in Denver and they forget about rural Colorado because Pueblo is rural Colorado also. We're just the hub for the rural and people forget that. And sometimes it's just like District 70 right now what's going on. I was talking with their school board uh, member over there. You know, as a charter school, we're, we're chartered through authorizers mm-hmm. and we're, our charter schools authorized through District 60. If we were to move our authorizer to District 70, we would take a haircut of about $600 per pupil. That's crazy. That doesn't make but sense. But tell everybody why. You know, it, 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 it well, I'll go into that. <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense because why is it that we're, in the same area, we're working the same students, we're focusing on it's our whole community, but why are we taking that cut? You know, and, and that's where you come into, you're right. As a parent, if we were to allow full parental choice without really talking to the stakeholders and getting a full understanding, we're going to have parents in Rye that can afford to drive their children to a private school in Pueblo or a charter school in the city of Pueblo. And what is that? About a 35 minute drive. Mm-hmm. And there's some families that can't afford that, or they might be a working family that doesn't work from home and they, they work nine to five and the school hours are four days a week, um, maybe eight to four thirty, And, you know, you can't, you know, it makes, it makes it harder. So I, I think that there's a lot that that's going on that we need to make a change on. But I think Brian's really skilled on the, why we have the $600 less. Cause him and I were talking about it. Talk, talk to tell us Brian, cause this is a huge talking point right now. And I know district 70 is on your guys's. Yeah. They're a yeah, member yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I don't understand with district 70, which would actually add some money to the students is why is it not a rural school district? There you go. That rural designation, rural designation. And for anybody that says district 70 is not rural, I get Pueblo West. Pueblo West is, yeah, it's a big place now, but look at Rye, look at County. Yeah. Look at these schools, schools, the mountain schools, the farm schools. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're talking schools that have a handful of kids going there that are working for the, you know, way less money than their counterparts district. 60. And to be honest, I think a lot of the District 70 schools are fantastic schools. They're doing an amazing job with what they have, as good, if not better, than District 60. And I don't understand that. And I know that that has to be designated by the Colorado Department of Education. And we had this brought up to us in a meeting. And you know, they're asking, well, how do we do this? And you know, it's the CDEs in control of this. Yep. In my in my mind, it's like be loud, yell, scream. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, or whatever it is. Uh, and I don't think they've done that enough, and I think they need to. Well, and part of it, we looked at this. I looked at this years ago under a different flag, um, and of course, because you know, my husband's a teacher in District Seventy, um, and we would actually have to sue CD, like the district would have to sue CDE in order to get that changed. There's that's the only way to do it. But to your point, 
um, about when parents are able to get involved and they're able to, whether it's choosing the school or saying, look, what do we do with what we've got? Um, I had an opportunity last year to go and tour the new school in Del Norte. Um, and it was such a beautiful school. And it was, I mean, it's a public school in a rural community. I think a population of like 1,400. Yeah. Wow. It's a tiny, and you should see the, and it's a K through 12 school, but you should see this beautiful school. Everything's state of the art. Everything is just amazing. And I thought to myself, well, if they can do it, why can't some of our other schools do it? And I'm telling you, and I say this, and I'm, going to say it. If anybody from District 70 had school board administration had been on that tour with me, I'd have punched them full in the face (laughs) because there's no reason if someplace like Del Norte can do it, then there's really no reason. Like you're out of excuses to do it. Something has to be done different and we have to be open to how can we do this in a way that's productive that actually serves students? That's true. So one one of our passions, we're both veterans, um, is the veteran care. And there is a motion and a movement to put a one-source shop here in Pueblo. And I brought this up with everybody running. So right now, currently, there's the Western Slope One Source. I call it One Shop, but it's the One Source. So a hub where all veteran services are located there. They partner with the community, so the hospital, um, the VA, the state, local VSOs, everything. Similar to what Mount Carmel's doing in Pueblo. Uh, They have a similar model. But the funding for that goes away next year. So it's sunset legislation. So they have to look at it and reauthorize the funding for it. Now, if that funding is reauthorized, the state, the DMVA with the state, the state VA, they're planning on expanding that one source shop to Pueblo. And the veterans groups here are all about that. We've been trying to do this for years. It gets off a little bit and then it falls apart. But I think with that state funding partnering with the the local and the federal coming in, that could be a huge resource for our Pueblo veterans. Would you support the reauthorization of that funding? Oh, definitely. 100%. Because, you know, it, it even goes back to our motto when you would deal with me with the VA and I would come and talk to you and I'd say, you know, what's our motto is to care for him who shall born the battle. Mm-hmm. And and I think sometimes we get away from that in a community. We, we get focused on other things, but but I truly believe that a one-stop shop is huge. It, it's very important. It's like I just learned recently, and I, you know, I didn't know this for the longest time, is the Vet Center here in Pueblo. That was started by a group of Vietnam veterans, which is now being ran by the VA. But when they started the Vet Center, it was a way that these veterans got together to make sure that any veteran after that never had experienced what they did. And, and that's access to health care. That's being treated when you need it, having somebody to talk to. Um, and this goes back to when I was at CSU Pueblo. I'll give you guys a little bit. I came back from my second tour in Iraq, and I was going to CSU Pueblo, and I realized that CSU Pueblo had a placard. I went to do a sign-up for my classes, and it said they were a Hispanic-serving institution, and then right next to it, it said they were a veteran-serving institution. So then I, I kind of walked around campus that day and, you know, I was young in my 20s and I go, we're a veteran serving institution. I'm a veteran. I just came back from my second tour in Iraq. And what do they have here for me? What does that mean that you're a veteran serving institution? And I'm telling you this because I believe a lot of the times 
they just people love to use veterans as a brand. We you know mm-hmm. we're we're that token. We're that oh yeah, you know, we we got a veteran. It's like it reminds me when I used to be a democrat and they would call me and say, "Hey Stephen, we need a veteran for a photo shoot." Mm-hmm. Not that I'm a union <laughs> president, not that I have a masters in clinical social work, not that I serve on all these boards, but it's like we need a Hispanic veteran. Can you show up for this? And I feel like we get used that way a lot and when, when I was there, we advocated because we were missing something, and it was the natural helper program. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have where a peer-to-peer, where I can go and say, hey, Brian, you're already on your second year. I just came back. What classes do you recommend? Or we didn't even have anywhere to decompress because there's something else that comes with being a veteran college student. We were non-traditional. We were older than the rest of the group. And, and why? Here. Yeah, right. And, and why I'm telling you this story is because it ties into needing to be advocated for in our communities. I don't know if you've talked on your show about the Heirs Commission and what we're looking at and how a lot of these VA clinics are going to be going away. And when they go away, those are labor union jobs. You know, I, I was their union president. These are doctors, nurses. So when people think union, they think of the trades or they think of a janitor or police officer. But no, in the VA, your union members were clinical social workers. They were nurses. They were nurse practitioners. They were pharmacists. They were biomed. They were doctors, psychiatrists. And these, and most of those folks who get into that field tend to be veterans. You know, and, and one of the things that when I first ran, I wanted my slogan to be proud to serve again because I believe that's what we do. We as veterans, we are always trying to serve our community. We're always willing to help one another. And with that veteran one source, or uh, is that the proper name? Is it the I veterans think it's one, one source? I, it's I veterans always say one, one source. shop. But yeah, you said yeah. one shop, but it's veterans I, one I, source. I always confuse it. It's the West Slope Veterans One Source. So yep. that's what the state brands it, but it's a one stop shop. One stop shop. I think when you create that, just think of one thing as a veteran, whether it be a Vietnam or it be a younger veteran like ourselves. I guess we could still call ourselves young veterans. <laughs> I think I'm only a few more years away from not being a young veteran, but. Um, when, when we look at ourselves as younger veterans, we don't have time. We're non-traditional in the sense of when we were students, we were non-traditional. Now in the community, we're non-traditional. We're involved. We have jobs. We have careers. We have kids that are in high school, middle school. Sometimes we're the older veterans, their grandparents, or they're dealing with a lot. And this is their first time getting access to health care. And we don't look at it that way. Some of these folks didn't have access in the 90s, and now they're kind of skeptical about what is this one-stop shop? Are they going to really help me? Is this really going to work? I've been here before. What are you going to do? And we're running into with the VA clinics that are closing, they don't have healthcare providers that are local. They don't have somebody to talk to. So we're giving them a promise that has been written into federal legislation to care for him who shall born the battle And we're saying we want to offer it to them. My only hope is let's not just fund it. Let's fully fund it. Let's make sure that it's fully staffed. Let's make sure that we're giving them the access they deserve because they did serve our country. You know, I, we, we served our country. You know, I I think you deployed as well, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, I know when we came back, this was a promise we wanted fulfilled and we want to see fulfilled for the next generations. And, if we look at those numbers, 42,000 veterans we serve here, we look at Parkview Hospital losing their acute care. We have some veterans that are dealing with where they need to be put on a 72-hour hold just to get that help. And when they get that help, most of those veterans will say thank you because they needed it. And that's not here anymore. 
and we're a community, now we have to send them to Colorado Springs or we have to send them to um, Lakewood or somewhere else. I mean, to have that is very important, and I think we need to fund it. Well, the other thing on that, I think um, we talk a lot about uh, serving uh, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a veteran, um, but we see a lot on um, one of the best ways to serve bet- veterans is to allow them to continue to serve in one way or the other. Yep. I think that happens a lot. It's, it's their purpose. It's what they've been trained to do is to serve and take care of. And when you, and when you put up barriers to that, that's incredibly harmful. The other thing that I've that I've observed that's sort of unique about veterans and why this is an important issue is um, veterans are better than civilians at being able to say what it is they need or want, um, especially what it is they need. So if a veteran is saying, this is what I need, you should be listening to that and delivering on that. That's the other way to serve our veterans, don't you think? I think we're better at saying no <laughs> no, no you, yes, no, no, I, no that's no, true. No, I agree. I, I totally agree. When well, you're saying when, so if they're not saying no, and you're saying this is what I need, then you better be, yeah. we better be listening to that. Well, on, and, on that side. and I feel like they don't listen sometimes the veterans and, and Brian, I'll give you a good example. Him and I went to go meet with Senator Bennett's office came mm-hmm. down and they were going to talk to us about these VA services. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in the veteran community, just because you don't see, a hundred veterans show up to one event, they send the people that represent them. Yes. So you might get 10 people, but those 10 people are speaking for a couple of hundred of people that they went back and talked to. And that's what people don't understand is when we're coming to the table, we're at the table with a lot of voices behind us. And it was unfortunate because when we went to that event, we were hoping to have Michael Bennett there to talk to us. And and that's one thing I got to give kudos to Brian on is when Brian worked with uh, Senator or, or Congressman Tipton's office, they were always willing to listen. And not only were they willing to listen, they always had a plan of action. And that's what we need. I feel like so often, and even in our community, we're talking about rural access. We could even talk about agriculture because one mm-hmm. of the things that's going on right now is the growing thing about veteran farmers. Why is nobody talking about that? Veterans love the seclusion. They want to work a field. It's therapeutic. They have horse ranches. They're out there growing lettuce and greenhouses. There's so many things that are going on in Pueblo. We could be a hub for these veterans Mm -hmm. because we're we're not only just like, I I think some people look at us as as a small city on the southern part of the I-25 corridor, but we're not just a small city. We are rural. We are agriculture. I mean, we're, I mean, we have better chilies than Hatch, New Mexico. <laughs> it's a good thing you said that, Stephen, or we would have fought. I'd have kicked you right out of here. <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and even like, for instance, my house, I have a, an urban garden. I have 10 chickens. You know, I, my, my wife jokes and calls me a chicken daddy. I get up, <laughs> <laughs> I get up in the morning and, and, you know, my sons and I, you know, we, they've named them, you know, we have, we have, a oh, man, dude, are you going to eat them? Like, hey, no, 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 no. <laughs> So we have big red kiwi, we, you know. You got to name them names that are food, right? Like buffalo wings and stuff like that. Well, we do have a hot wing. Oh, she is the mean one. She pecks all the other ones. Let me tell you, she is so mean. <laughs> so I asked the question um, a while back, uh, and not to you guys, um, but the question I posed was, um, to your point about how many in our ag community are actually veterans, you know, um, our ag community suicide rates really high. Veteran community, our suicide rate, 
the suicide rate real, is really high. My question is, how many of those are the same? So how many with um, struggling on the mental side of it in our ag community are actually veterans as well? Exactly. It would be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody... I can find I, that. I know you I could. think we could probably find it somehow. Yeah. That would be yeah. a good number to look at. Um, yeah, just, just for that simple fact. You know, also I was looking at some numbers... Brian, I think you were talking to me about this. Aren't we right now the highest in the nation for adolescent suicides? Yeah, unfortunately. It, I hate to say it and end the show on a downer, but adolescent suicides, I think our veteran suicide and active duty suicide is the highest of any state here as well. And then our agriculture suicide is the highest. Wow. Here in Colorado. Well, you know, and, and I, I think, and the reason why I bring up the adolescent is, you know, here in Pueblo County, we don't have any adolescent psych care. Yeah. And we lost that a year ago. And we service, Pueblo is services here, Lahana, Lamar, Alamosa. We service, uh, I mean, all those areas and they come to us. Now our nearest adolescent unit is in Lakeview. Lake, yeah. Lake yeah. So the families for everybody, um, if somebody's in, gets in that, um, it's it's like an involuntary, but it's a 72-hour, we've got to protect you from 72 you. 72-hour hold, yep. um, That 72-hour hold, there's no, there's no place for them here. Everybody's full up. Um, but not only that, there's no place for, so the families that are supporting have to travel um, five, six, seven hours each way um, because of because of yeah. that. It, it makes it incredibly difficult. And, and every person that's a candidate for office right now or in office has brought this up. This isn't a Democrat or Republican thing. Correct. Everybody from school board uh, to senator, it's been brought up every time that we are severely lacking that care for yep. our children. And I'm, when I went to school, there was somebody in the school with me. Of course. You could talk to. Um, now there's not. And it's sad. Really sad. You know, one one of the things that is a model that LA Unified does, because I, I look at the schools as a hub for the kids. It's a mm-hmm. safe place. It's somewhere that some kids are getting their meals for the day. Yeah. You know, and I think it's a place where, and, and I think that's where there's, we're running into teacher burnout as well. Like when we talked about education earlier, I think we expect more from our teachers sometimes than mm-hmm. just being able to teach those core curriculums. And, and the answer that LA Unified started to use was bringing clinical social workers mm-hmm. into the educational system and allowing them to meet with these students that were in crisis or helping these students that were homeless, giving them that safe person. Um, I know, you know, right now we're focusing more on social workers essentially as being police officers and not allowing police officers to be police officers. I think we got it kind of backwards, you know, and then this is me as a clinical social worker saying this. I think we need more social workers in the educational system to work with the youth and then allow our police officers to be fully funded and to work and do their scope. You know what I mean? And it goes back into that scope of practice. And, and why I'm saying that is because if we allow that in the educational system, we can really start finding those numbers to start to drop. Because when you see those clinical social workers in the education, they're not just working with the student. They're looking at it as a biopsychosocial from meeting the person where they're at and talking to the mother, the father, the grandma, the grandfather. Because we see that here in Pueblo a lot. We have a lot of grandparents that are raising kids that are helping them through the system. We have a lot of families that are strung out on drugs right now. So there's a lot of things we have to focus on that we're not looking at. 
And, and that's why I tell people Pueblo's not a one-size-fits-all. We're unique. We're Pueblo. And I think we're getting tired of activists who get elected to office that are making decisions for us in Denver that don't understand what Pueblo needs and what we're about. And I think we need to start focusing on that. I, I think that now we're in an area where Action 22, I've seen you guys become more active in the last five to six years. Sarah Blackhurst, you've done a great job. And Brian, you being a part of this team has been phenomenal. I think this is the best thing that's happened because I've seen more community partnership. Mm -hmm. And I've seen us be able to have these conversations. And, And I think that's what we're seeing with the growing trend in Pueblo County. I remember when I first moved here, or when I first came out the service, Pueblo County was an 18 plus D district and then it went to eight and then it went to six and now we're 50 50. And I think a lot of that is telling that folks like you and I are getting involved in and we're tired of being represented by people that don't represent us. Mm -hmm. And we want our values, which are Pueblo County values Mm -hmm. to be taken up to the Capitol. And I think that's important. And it goes back to those kitchen table issues. It goes back to the doors that we're hitting it goes back to talking to the the little old lady that is alone and saying that she doesn't recognize Pueblo when she's out at the grocery store anymore. She remembers somebody holding a door for her. I remember when my wife and I bought our house on the south side, my neighbor, 86 years old, walked across with the pie. And she lived there four generations. That is Pueblo. And we need to get back to those values. And, and I and, and I feel like we're missing it. And, you know, I, I understand that, that, you know, political races can get very political and they can get very polarized. And, and you know, any of our listeners that are listening that are from Pueblo County, I want them to know that me, I'm a very middle ground candidate. I want to bring our values to the Capitol and let people know what we represent. And it's nothing negative against my opponent. I know he's from Michigan, only been here a couple of years, but Pueblo values are our values, you know, our family values. It's what we're about. And I think if you even look at, I brought you guys a flyer, it talks about what I've been doing. I'm on the zoo board. I'm on a child care board. I'm on an early education board. I said on the planning commission because that's what it's about. It's about service to our community. And I think we need to start electing folks that are willing to serve our community. Even if it wasn't me that's running, we need more people like yourself and myself that are actually in the weeds and know what's going on to take our values to Denver. And we're not seeing that. And we haven't seen it for a while. You know, we haven't seen anybody, I mean, that has held a job or a small business owner or had a career that, that actually represent us. And I think it's time that we're ready for it in Pueblo. And it's it's a ripe time for us to have full representation. I think uh, Cleve Simpson is the only legislator in Denver that owns water rights. He is. He is. He's the only, there's a few farmers and ranchers, but he's the only one that owns water rights. And we're, so a lot is on his shoulders. Can I finish with the Ferris question? Sure. And okay. then, then I'll close it out with the standard oh, I'm sorry. disclaimer. I'm, I'm talking for a long time. No, 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 no we love it. We, no, we're this trying is, to keep you on time. <laughs> this is, this is what we had wanted to do. So I'm going to ask you, um, my son is, uh, our son is 24 years old. One of our boys is 24 years old. And we have a lot of, and we also have identical twins. There's a lot of um, philosophical, political discussions that happen at at, uh, at our house. And one of the questions we were, were going to pose to to both you and Nick was, was this one. Um, and it comes from Ferris because it's this discussion. Um, 
So he voted in the last general election. Um, and then he said he's not going to vote again. He's done voting um, because of two things. One is he genuinely does not believe his vote counts. Um, number two is um, he went with his buddy to go vote and he's looking through the ballot measures and he's and both of them called me up and screamed at me after they voted. And I'm like, I'm not the one that writes the language. And they're like, but you could do something about this. Uh, we didn't know what any of this meant. Um, and then um, number three, his thought is um, he's not voting, but that is a vote. What he's saying is that's sort of his little protest to say, I don't like any of the candidates. They're not, they're not going to represent me, and my vote doesn't count anyway. So what would you say to my my son who I think represents a lot of of his of that generation, that that demographic. You mean the early twenty year olds that have everything figured out? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It make, it makes me tired. Um but he, you know, he has there's there's some he has a point. There's some validity to that. Like it's one vote and all of this is decided beforehand. Like that's the thought process. What would you say? You know, I'll it's very interesting because I think all of us were in our 20s once and felt the same way. You know, we're not going to vote. I don't know if anybody hears me, but I'll tell him is that his vote does count. Every vote counts and it starts at the lowest level. And I think that is one of the best, greatest, most exciting things that I ever done or have, have been involved in is an election process is when I ran for city council, mm-hmm. it was because I felt that way at some points. Like, does anybody really hear me? Is anybody really listening to me? You know, it, it was one of those. And a lot of veterans, Brian, to tell you, we feel the same way as we're never heard. You can never use government and efficiency in the same <laughs> sentence. And the reason why I'm saying that is those ballot measures are written like gov- like a government handbook. You know, mm-hmm. it, it should just say, do you want to free wolves or not? But instead, it's like if a wolf walks and it goes all the way down all this whole like, you know, <laughs> but I, I think one of the things that, that we really need to do is is really engage our youth. And I feel like they're not being engaged. And I don't think it's more in the sense of that their vote doesn't count because they don't feel like they're being talked to. They don't feel like they're being heard. And that goes back to even you as a parent. You could even argue that same thing. Are you being heard? I'm a parent. Am I being heard? Because I, I mean, it, it can keep on going. As a small business owner, you have people that are, you know, I, I ran into a small business owner that was a longtime Democrat, and she goes, "I voted Democrat every year, and the Democrats have passed all these bills to where nothing happens to somebody that breaks into my shop, steals all my merchandise, and then they don't want to give me anything to help me out." And I, I just feel like everybody's not feeling heard right now. And that goes back to, if you look at a lot of the folks that have been elected, a lot of them are activists or they're, they haven't been in a real career, career, career field. They haven't been a veteran or they haven't served their country. They don't know what it means to actually go through some of these processes. And I think that, and they haven't had, some of them don't have kids that are your children's age, or some of them haven't even engaged with you. And some of them have forgotten that they were 24 years old once and the world was big and they didn't know what decisions to make. So I think sometimes it takes working together and humbling ourselves. And even me understanding that I don't know it all. 
And that's why I'm never afraid to say, you know, help me understand. And I would love to even meet with your son because I'd love to know what that generation's talking about. And and that goes back to where I think we're seeing this nationally in politics where some parties believe they own a certain demographic of voter. And we were we're not owned by any party. And I think the best advice I could even give your son, I know this is long, but I think the shortest way to say it is you make the party, the parties don't make you. So the minute you get involved is the minute the party changes. And that's where the very first level of change happens. And that's where his vote can start to matter. Because when that senator or congressman or house representative or all the way down to the dog catcher, as Brian says, gets on that ballot, it happens from a precinct captain. It happens from a delegate to the to the um, county assembly. And I think that's where the change happens. So make the party. Don't let the party make you. Build the platform. Don't, don't let the platform tell you what to do. So where can people find out more about you? Yes, it's going to be voteforvarela.com. I brought some of my flyers if anybody's looking on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can focus in, zoom in, talks all about Varela. But yes, voteforvarela.com. Or you can find me on Facebook. It's uh, Varela for Senate District 3. Or you can find me in the community. I'm always knocking doors. Um, they, they don't let me knock, knock, not knock doors. So you'll see me out and about. Um, <laughs> come and catch me. And, and I, yes, I know. And I, and I even do a live, uh, if any of you guys no, seen I've it. No, I've seen it. I've yeah, seen yeah, it. People love it because I'm like, I'm in your neighborhood. I'm walking around <laughs> and you're sort of showing where the houses are. And we're yeah. like, oh, I know where he's at right now. Exactly. So please come and connect with me. I'm always open. I'm, I'm willing to engage with anybody. And I will tell you, it is unfortunate. My my opponent has said he'd love to talk policy or speak with me, and he's not here today. I was very much hoping to engage with him. We'll, and, we'll work it out on another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll work it out. So, oh, thank yeah. you. So, the disclaimer, um, Action 22 does not support or endorse candidates during an election season. What we do is support our members. So, if you are running for office please contact us at show at action22.org. And it's an open platform for any Action 22 member running for office. Come on, tell us what you're about. I think we have two coming up, right? So we have um, Dave Young, the Mm -hmm. state treasurer, and um, Adam Frisch. Frisch. They they will both be on. We'll record that this week, so you'll probably hear those next week. week. Um, And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or you want to yell at us, email us at show at action22.org, S-A- Eh, can't talk s-h-o-w at action 22.org and if you're not a member of action 22 visit our website www.action22.org and there's information on how to become a member or you can email me again at show at action 22.org i have to do before we sign off i need to do a really quick return and report on a meeting that we had last night in colorado city um so and i don't even know if i've talked to you about this yet um there's nothing you can do about it so that's probably i haven't talked to you but um the the citizens in the Colorado City Metro District have been without mail service for a full month now. And it's likely going to be another month before they have mail service. So um, they asked uh, they asked us, Action 22, to host a show, or not a show, a meeting about it, a community meeting. We had over 200 people get last night show up to this. Um, we had taken this um, to, uh, to uh, Congressman Bobert's office. Of course, Kathy Garcia is the, is the regional rep on that. Um, and she's been helping out with that. And she's you know, the, she's the one that started Action 22, so we know she has a real heart for this. Um, the 
there's some things going forward. So if you were at the meeting last night, or if you were interested in this, the recap, the Metro District is writing a letter. Um, the United States Postal Service people were invited to the meeting to, yet last night. They did not show up. They sent an email that they were opening 80 other locations, and that's why they are today or something. It's kind of a slap in the face. You're seriously. wanting them to show up because you don't have a post office, and so, then they don't because they're opening other post offices? So we're, yeah. So I'm, it was a slap in the face. I think it was rather brave. I will be making a phone call later today. Um, there's uh, petitions going around in Colorado City um, right now and there were last night um, to get some help on this. They need a real post office there in Colorado City and there's no reason, there's no excuse for that because we're talking about people who are getting checks by mail, seniors are getting checks by mail. But even more important, um, their um, medications. So they're just out. Like right now they can't get, if they have mail in medications, they're just stuck. There's no recourse for this. It's completely shameful that anybody um, in the United States, when you think about Benjamin Franklin, had gotten it to, um, they could get uh, from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. in 24 hours. And our people right now can't get this. It's it's a, a bad deal. So we're working on that. Um, if you are in the area um, and uh, or if you want to just lend your support to that, um, you can e- um, email us that and we'll put we're compiling letters and, and that kind of thing. Again, show at action22.org. Yep. Finally, Chad Vorthman, I know you're listening and I've said it so many times, but I saw a picture. Your entire staff has mustaches now. This is unacceptable. And I'm sure we will see you on Friday and you guys are all going to have mustaches and you're going to be down here at the state fair with your mustaches. Can we have this trend end? You're the only one that can do it. All right. Thanks so much. We will see you, like Brian said, next week. Thanks, Stephen, for coming and being with us um, and uh, look for more episodes just like this. Thanks. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders, Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, You can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.